All right, um, Ephesians. We're continuing our study of Ephesians, and this morning we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 21. So if you have your Bibles with you, go ahead and open up to Ephesians. I'll also have the passage up on the screen behind me. And please join with me now as I read the Word of God. This is God's Word. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us. To him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning and we just pray for a fresh hearing of your word. We just pray that you would till the ground that is our hearts. That our hearts would be that good ground this morning. That fertile soil that you preached about. That we would receive the word with all gladness and readiness. But that we wouldn't leave this place forgetting what it was we just heard but that the seed watered and planted this morning would begin to take root, that it would spring up in us, and that as we leave this week, it would bear fruit, that we would be men and women who are living Bibles that can be read by anybody, that you would transform our character, that where there are wrong attitudes where there is bitterness, where there is resentment, where there is anger. We pray that you would uproot such things and replace it with love and joy and peace and hope. And we pray that we would be able to go out into the world and that we would share this hope of the Gospel with those who desperately need it. And that we would not withhold it from them due to our own pride, due to our own fear or our own insecurity, but we would be like that sower in the parable who just sows liberally everywhere he goes. Help us to be such fruitful sowers in our hearing and receiving of the Word this morning. We pray all this so that Jesus will receive the glory that he is due through his life, death, and resurrection. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. All right. The famous theologian, Russell Crowe, once said, what we do in life echoes in eternity. Now, of course, he didn't say that in real life. He said it in his famous role in the movie Gladiator. 
Russell Crowe played the starring character Maximus Decidus Meridius. That's a good name, right? And the scene is at the beginning of the movie. And the Romans, um, uh, Marcus Aurelius is the emperor at this time, and the, the kingdom is about to sort of reach its zenith. It's, it's mostly the era of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome, except on the frontier there's one last tribe that needs to be subdued, and it's the Germ- Germanic Horde. And so Maximus is leading his troops, and they're preparing for battle, and it's already been waging, and it's high losses on both sides. And so Maximus rides out on his horse in front of his troops, and that's when he utters these words. What we do in life echoes in eternity, and he says this to rally his troops so that they will live their lives bravely and be willing to lay them down sacrificially. Well, God has so given us a means of living lives that echo in eternity. And the means by which our lives echo in eternity is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel that echoes down through the halls of eternity. So far in Ephesians, Paul has talked about this gospel. And he's done that in chapter 1, verse 1, all the way here until chapter 3, verse 13. I would say that's what that whole section is. It's about the gospel. And the gospel is always not what you have done for God. The gospel is always what God has done for you. And Paul makes very clear in Ephesians 2 in very famous lines, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one can boast. The gospel, salvation, is a gift of God. And the purpose is to eliminate any human boasting. So the gospel is all about what God has done. No effort on your part. No work. No good works. Nothing. The gospel is about what God has done. But one of the reasons many people bypass the gospel or skip the gospel or minimize the gospel or misunderstand the gospel is because so much of the Bible is about what we do, right? I mean, how many, you know, there's 613 rules in the Old Testament. 613. Um, There's different counts on the New Testament, but many would be surprised to hear it somewhere in the same neighborhood. Many commands in the New Testament. Not the same ones, but there's many commands. So a lot of people read these rules. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. You've got to do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't do this. And they think of themselves as, as saying that that's what the essence of Christianity is. It's all these things we have to do to be good little boys and good little girls. Good little Christians that can earn our way to heaven. But that's not the gospel. Remember, the gospel is what God has done. And that excludes anything you can do. But of course, we read like we're going to read the rest of Ephesians after this week, 4 through 6, and it is all about what you need to do and what you need to stop doing. But right in the middle of what God has done that excludes our works and the other half of Ephesians, which is all about the things you and I are called to do, is the section before us this morning. Ephesians three fourteen through 21. And what we have here is God's power in the gospel to enable us to fulfill our eternal call. So that's what we have this morning. It's the means by which we are enabled to live the Christian life. 
And without this means, we cannot live the Christian life. You can't just do it in your own natural moral energy. You will find that you fail. You will find that as hard as you try, and let's, let's say for just example's sake, you do a pretty good job at keeping the rules. But deep down, you'll be miserable. Because it's all about earning God's favor. God is that hard father. And maybe many of you know what this is literally like. A father that was just impossible to please. And that can shape you the rest of your life no matter how old you are. And sometimes people look at God that way. He's just that hard father who's never quite pleased. He demands a lot, but he'll never give you an attaboy. Never pat you on the back. And if we don't get what God is doing in the gospel, that it's all about him, he initiated, not you. And that he's going to give you the power right here to live out all these things. Not to please him, but because you're already pleasing to him in Jesus. Then we can actually misunderstand what all the commandments in the Christian life are all about. So this is sort of the engine room, I would say, of the book of Ephesians. It's going to take what God has done, apart from our works, and it's going to put it in us so that we can go do and be and live and act the Christian life. And so we're going to look at four different points this morning. Number one, prayer is an essential means of increasing faith in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 14. It says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. When Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees, he's assuming a posture of prayer. Obviously, bowing the knees can be worshipful, but it's also a posture of prayer. We see this with key Old Testament figures like Ezra and Daniel, for example. They would kneel down, physically kneel down, and they would pray. So this is important. Paul is praying, and look at what he says in verse 15. From whom the whole family and heaven and earth is named. Now, naming in the ancient world was a sign of one's sovereign authority over another. We can point to Adam in the garden who named all the animals. This was showing Adam's sovereignty over the animals. He is in charge. He is naming them. We see this in more bleak circumstances when the Israelites are captured by Babylon and taken away and King Nebuchadnezzar and his chief eunuch, how would you like that job? The chief eunuch renames Daniel Belteshazzar. He renames him, demonstrating his sovereignty over him. So when Paul says, for this reason I bow my knees in prayer to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven on earth is named, he's telling us something about the nature and purpose of prayer. Part of the nature and purpose of prayer is acknowledging and submitting to God's sovereignty over your life. This is what we're doing in prayer. In a sense, whether a person goes through this thought process or not, they, they may well not. But whether they go through this thought process or not, if you have a prayerless life 
at a spiritual level, it is because you want to live outside the sovereignty of God. You want to live your life your own way. That could be it. I, I don't want to submit to God's sovereignty. I don't, I don't like what he says. It could, it could be, well, I want to, but I'm, I'm scared of God. I'm honestly scared of what he would do if I surrendered my life to him. So I, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to submit to his sovereignty. Prayer is submitting to the sovereignty of God, and it is actually a means by which faith is increased in our lives. So if we don't have prayer, then our faith in Christ is going to be stunted. And as we're going to see the rest of this passage, faith is a prerequisite to all the treasures of the heavenly life. Faith is the key that unlocks the door. So prayer is a gift of God that increases our faith in Christ. I look at it this way. Sometimes people think that trials, trials alone, are sort of like a, a badge of faith and a badge of honor. But that's not really true. Trials are important, but they're no guarantee of anything other than you're in a trial. I liken trials to a gym membership. Have any of you ever got, you, you've had a New Year's resolution, right? It's January 1st and you're like, you know what? I've been trying, you know, I've been kind of letting it go and I, I need to get in shape. Doctor said I got to start watching my blood pressure and all this. So I'm going to do it. I'm really going to do it. So you ante up and you actually get a gym membership and, and you feel good. I got a gym membership. Look at that. Look at that. I got a gym membership. And then a year passes and you haven't been a single time. And then maybe your, your wife or husband brings it up like, hey, honey, I noticed on our billing statement we, we're paying for a gym membership. Yeah, that's right. I joined a year ago. Well, when did you go last? You're like, well, I haven't been. Like, oh, okay, well, that, that's fine, honey. I don't want to make you feel bad, but we're going to cancel it. You're like, no, you can't. I, I have a gym membership. It's, it's like proof that I'm serious about getting healthy. Trials are like a gym membership. They provide the opportunity to get into spiritual shape, but they are no guarantee you are actually using the equipment. Faith is actually taking the trials of your life and working out. That you actually accept, like, I'm going through this crazy thing right now. This person's doing this. I got this health situation. My money issue is, is this, and I don't know what's going on. Okay, there's your gym. You got a gym membership. That's good. But that's not good enough. How many trials can I look back on and say, I flunked? I got a gym membership and I, and I didn't go. So for me, one of the things I want to do now is not so much pray, oh Lord, don't give me any more trials or I don't want to have to go through this again. It's Lord, well, it's that too. Um, but Lord, if you're going to give me a trial, help me to exercise faith. Help me to learn whatever you want me to learn. Help me to grow. Help me to become the kind of man you want me to be. If there's anything in me that's not good, it's not of you, you don't want it, maybe it's not sinful, but it's not the best. Maybe it's like an ankle weight. I'm, I'm here trying to run on the treadmill. I'm trying to run a marathon or something, and I got ankle weights on. And you're telling yourself, well, it's not sinful to have ankle weights. But is it slowing you down? Is it keeping me from reaching the goal that God has set up for me? If so, it may not be sinful for somebody else, but if for me it holds me back, I want to take that off. 
And I want to start using the trials, that, that gym membership, as it were, to actually exercise faith. And one of the ways we do this, one of the chief ways, is prayer. And as we all know, trials will make or break you. One or the other. And what decides? Are you helpless? Is it a flip of the coin? You just never know how you're going to come out of this? I can tell you right now that a person who prays through the trial is a person whom the trial makes. So faith manifested through prayer acknowledges the sovereignty of God and what it actually does. It increases our faith, our trust in Jesus. Number two, an increase in faith leads to an increase in the presence of Christ in our hearts. Look at verse 16 through 17a. That he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. A big mistake that people make is to think about Christ dwelling in their hearts in merely black and white terms. Like either Christ is totally dwelling in my heart or He's not dwelling at all. But Paul here is talking about some sort of condition in which Christ can dwell, but to greater extents. So we shouldn't just think about Christ dwelling in us as, as though that's, that's an all or nothing thing. Apparently, there's room for growth even in the presence, the abiding presence of Christ in our hearts. Think of it this way. Picture your house or your apartment or your condo or dorm room, whatever it is, okay? Now imagine you're having some guests over, and these guests, they're not close family, they're not close friends. You, you, maybe you've just kind of met them, and you just kind of want to hang out and get to know them a little bit better. Do you let them into every room in your house? Maybe not. I mean, when I was growing up, if I had friends over, you know, my parents would be, okay, we'll make sure shut our bedroom door. That's private. I don't want, you know, like 12-year-olds going through, you know, the, their drawers or something like that or looking for things. You never know what kids will do, by the way. So lock your doors, everybody. But just, you know, they'll lock the door. And then, and then maybe the attic, you know, you got family heirlooms up there. There's no business for you know, somebody you barely know being up in your actually, okay, well, they, they won't go in there. And maybe there's a room you didn't clean. You didn't have time to clean it before guests. And you're like, oh, I'm going to shut that door. Don't want that. Maybe you have an office at home and has confidential paperwork in there. So you just can't let people in. So these people can be in your house. You welcome their, them in. That does not mean that they occupy every room in the house. I think it's the same way with Christ. You can welcome Jesus into your life. You know, and some people say, well, that's, you're, you know, you're saved. That's it. It's an all or nothing thing. You're, you raise your hand. Okay, well, hold on. There's the idea of Christ is knocking on the door of your heart. And let's, let's say there's a definable moment. Maybe there isn't for you. It's just this long history where it was just very, very slow and gradual. Always seems to be there. But for the sake of the picture, Christ knocks on the door. You open it before you told him to get lost, right? Like he was selling, you know, some product or something. But this time you let Jesus in. But you say, Jesus, you stay in the living room. That door's locked. That's the bedroom. You don't go in there. Oh, Jesus, I'm sorry, that's the attic. I got, there's memories from the past. I don't want you 
touching. And then there's my, my office, my work. You know, I'll, I'll worship you kind of in my private life, but I'm not going to let you into my work. I think this is actually how Jesus relates to us. That you can genuinely be a believer, and I would, I would call a person a believer, who lets Jesus in the door. And yes, if you want to argue about it, yeah, that's good enough to go to heaven. That's not all you were saved for. You were saved for a life of meaning and purpose, and that meaning and purpose requires that you begin welcoming Jesus into all the locked rooms. That we can actually grow in that area. I mean, and so I would ask you, do you you have any rooms? Do you have any compartments where you've said to yourself, and maybe one of the reasons you haven't let Jesus in is because you felt like you didn't need to? Just like this guest has no, you know, they're in, that's good enough, they don't need to go in there. Well, Jesus is your spouse, right? You start blocking off your spouse from this room and that room and this bank account and that bank account, dodgy stuff. You allow Jesus into every room in your heart, every place. And I realize that's a scary thing. Because what Jesus does is he comes in and he will rearrange everything. And I think we know that. You know, we've got a nice orderly work life. We've got a nice orderly relationship with this person. You know, this is, you know, what, what I do with, with my, my time and my body and my, my thought life and what I do for entertainment and, and all this stuff. And you know, probably intuitively, that if you let Jesus in, changes are probably going to be made. And so we just shut doors and just give Jesus sort of a common area in which he is welcome. But if we actually pray, begin a life of prayer, our faith will increase, and what you'll find is that Jesus will start to occupy more space in your hearts. This is another reason that we won't pray, because maybe deep down again, we don't want this. Jesus wants to occupy every room in your heart. There's not one space over which his blood paid on the cross does not declare mine. So if our faith increases, then the presence of Christ in our heart will increase. Number three, an increase in Christ's presence leads to a greater personal knowledge of God's love. Look at verses 17 through 19. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. One of the things Paul thinks we need more than anything in the world is to know how much God loves you. Do you know how much God loves you? Do you have any idea? I think we would all want to say, at least partially yes, maybe it's not a capital yes, but I I want to say yes, I, I think I know. But what Paul is saying here is, you really don't. Doesn't mean what you know is not true or, or, or false, but you do not know the extent of it. God's love is so far beyond what you presently know. In Greek, Paul had to make up a word that doesn't exist anywhere else. 
He literally combined two superlatives, exceedingly abundantly. And he, he, he threw, threw them sort of together, literally. If you, if you look it up in a Greek lexicon, no one used this word. Nobody. No other New Testament writer, not Homer, not Sophocles, not you know, th- you know, uh, any of these great guys. Paul had to come up with a word to talk about how much God loves you. You have no idea. But Paul thinks it's important that your present idea be stretched. He wants wherever you're at, your sense of God's love for you, whatever you would say, to whatever extent you would say, God loves me, maybe it's this much, or this much, or this much, whatever it is. He wants to take whatever extent you you think he loves you, and he wants to extend it far beyond what you can possibly imagine. That's how much God loves you. If we ever get to the end where we think, okay, I've comprehended it. I got God's love. I get it. I've studied the Bible a lot. I've, I've studied the original languages. I've studied for many years. I've studied with the best, you know, preachers and professors and scholars and everyone. And I think I got it now. I think I got it. You don't have it. Paul actually says right here, and there's irony in verse 19, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, to know what you can't know. You see that? He wants you to know what you can't know. What he means is you will never, ever, ever, ever fully grasp how much God loves you, but you can increase your present awareness. And Paul thinks that this knowledge of God's love for you is what roots you and grounds you in life. Because one of the first things to be challenged when we go through trials, when we go through pain, when we go through suffering, when we go through loss, is, let's be honest, it's really hard to believe that God loves me sometimes. And I'm, if you feel that way, I'm in the same boat with you. I feel that way. I'm not saying I've given up anything I know in Scripture. I'm just telling you how I feel. My feelings are not always congruent with what I know in my head. There's times where I'm like, God, if you love me, you wouldn't let this happen. Right? God, if you love me, you wouldn't have let this person do this. God, if you love me, you wouldn't have let this good thing pass me over and happen to somebody else who's a horrible person. You, you wouldn't have done that if you loved me, God. God wants to get us to a place where we are so sure of God's love that we don't think that way anymore. But if we're all honest, that's probably not the case, that we're still in a, a growing place of life where something could happen that really stretches our understanding of God's love. One of the things I, I love to do when I, when I get to do it is, is pray for my kids at bedtime. I didn't always get to do this, you know, different seasons of life. Sometimes you're, you know, I remember, you know, like my little girl Emma, I feel the worst. I saw her the least as a kid, just didn't, didn't get to, you know, see her in the morning. I was gone before then, didn't get to tuck her in bed. I, I would come home after she was asleep and went on that way for years. I just never got to do it, which makes me appreciate when I get to be home at night and kiss my little boy, my little five-year-old, and, I, and pray with him. And I always tell my little boy, Deanie, Deanie, I love you so much. And in his cute little voice, I love you too, Daddy. You know, and it's like the cutest thing in the world. But what I want to say back to him, and I sometimes do, is, son, you have no idea how much I love you. 
Like, I believe he loves me, but I believe my love for him is, is far greater than even his love for me. He has no idea what I would be willing to do to protect him, to give him a life, to give him the chances that I never got, to try to protect him from, from the hurt I know that's damaged me and I, I don't want it to happen to my son as much as I can. He has no idea how much I love him. He has an idea, but he has no idea to the extent. And if an earthly father who's imperfect, finite, sinful, can love his little boy so much, how much more can our Heavenly Father, who is all good, who is all love, love us beyond our ability to know? And Paul is praying that you and I would come to such childlike understanding and reception of God's love. And I know sometimes we think, well, that's not practical. You know, God's love, knowing, no, I, I need money for my bills. Like, I don't need God's love. I don't need a hug. You know, I, I need to pay this bill or I need this situation to change. But as much as those things may very well be true, Paul thinks the number one abiding need you have in life right now is to know God's love for you more today than you did yesterday. And that nothing, nothing, nothing can take away God's love for you. And that you can trust God. Because God's love, you can trust Him. And that means if He lets you go through a hard season, if He lets you fall down and scrape your knee, if He lets you, whatever it is, you know, go to school and the kids made fun of you, whatever, why? If God allows it, it is not proof that he doesn't love you, but it is proof of his wisdom that somehow God knows he's going to take whatever this trial is, whatever this bad is, and he is going to turn it for good. Because that's what God does. And you, you can probe this language and scholars have about, you know, why, why is God God the Father? He's not human uh, right, he's, he's spirit and doesn't have a body, which we attribute masculine, feminine pronouns to, etc. But if you probe it, there is there is an interesting sort of parallel with you know fathers, and and I saw this growing up as a kid. You know, if if I wanted, like the way my my mom and dad would respond to me if I fell off my bike was different. If I fell off my bike as a little boy and scraped my knee, and I wanted someone to cry with me, I would go to my mom. Oh, baby, <laughs> that evil bike, we're going to throw it away. You'll never ride a bike again. You know, and I'm like, I'm not sure that's a great solution, but she loves me and doesn't want me to get hurt. My dad, if I run to him, he's like, oh, I'm sorry, son, that's a part of riding a bike. Like, I love you and I, I don't want you to get hurt, but I'm also willing to allow some hurt in your life to get you to go where I want you to go. That God is, I mean, he's, he's like a father in that sense, or at least like my father. It doesn't mean he's loving. Sometimes I want him to be more like my mom, where he's just, you know, he just, pain, no pain at any cost is, is ever worth it, just wants it out. But he's someone who will allow trials, he will allow hurt in our lives, not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us. And he knows he cannot get us to be who he wants us to become without that hurt. And that is the truth of life 
You know, a lot of, and I, and I get this sometimes, you know, we all have different parenting styles, even Christian parents who agree on the Bible and, um, you know, and we believe the same doctrines and all that, won't necessarily parent the same, and that's okay. I think there, there can be freedom and differences and diversity, but one of the things parents have to watch out for, and I think Christian parents in particular, is we can almost be too protective sometimes of the kids. Like, you want to protect them, but you can be so protective, you don't allow anything to happen to them that might possibly cause them to grow up. And this is actually happening more and more and more. You're having young people in their 20s or 30s that are still thinking and behaving like children because they haven't been allowed to grow up. We're taking the wounds for them. And our Heavenly Father, sometimes I wish He was like that, but I have found that he's not. He will allow me to get hurt. He will allow me to scrape my knee. He'll he'll allow my heart to be broken. And as much as I hate that, I see what God is doing in it, and he's causing me to be more and more like Christ, who was wounded for us. Christ, who is said to be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Even the Father did not withhold from His one and only eternal Son the pains of this life. And if the one who didn't deserve any sin, any evil ever done against Him ever, Jesus, could suffer and die, how much more can sinners in this life, even forgiven ones, still experience pain and suffering? But the promise is who God will form us to be is greater than we would be without the pain. And so because pain is important, as C.S. Lewis said, God's pain is God's megaphone that he uses to rouse a deaf world. He whispers to us in our pleasure, shouts at us in our pain. Pain many times is the thing that gets a hold of us. If it weren't for pain, I wonder how many of you would be here this morning. If it weren't for pain, how many of you would give Christ two seconds of your time, the Bible, church, any of it. It's pain that has brought us to Christ. It's some way, shape, or form. At the very least, even if you had what is by all accounts just a very smooth, nice, enjoyable life, you would have still had to have felt the pain of the guilt of your sin because that is what is necessary to repentance that we actually grieve over our sin, that we have wronged the one who has done everything for us, that our sins are an eternal affront to him, and that he loves us. And how could we do that against someone who loves us so much? That alone, even if your life was just pretty chill the rest of the time, that should bring grief. So given that we're going to go through pain and trials and difficulties, that we know God's love, is the most important resource we could ever ask for. Many times it's not the first that we would ask for for ourselves, but it's the first one God offers. I want you to know how much I love you and that no matter what comes, no matter what is, I will love you with an everlasting love. No one can take my arms off you. No, not even death itself. For I will embrace your soul throughout eternity, and when the time comes and the trumpet sounds, I love you so much, I will even raise your body again. You will have a resurrected body. That is how much God loves you and how much nothing can stop God's love. And we can grow in that every day. That is a possibility. 
There is no plateau for this. There's a plateau in just about everything else in life. You can't get better than that, can't get stronger than that, can't get more proficient. There's some level somewhere, but not with the knowledge of God's love. We can never, ever, ever reach the ceiling. In fact, eternity itself will not be enough to ever fathom the bottom of God's love. Eternal love. And Paul wants you and I to be grounded in it. And lastly, number four, the power to fulfill both God's global redemptive plan and your own personal calling begins in the heart. Look at verse 20 through 21. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Russell Crowe said, what we do in life echoes in eternity. God says, what Christ has done echoes through all eternity. And we can participate in that. That's the glorious plan of the church that Paul has revealed in Ephesians. That the church is God's grand plan that was a mystery. It was hidden from the prophets in the Old Testament that when Messiah would come, He would not just forgive sins and Gentiles would just not somehow be saved off on their own, but that God would unite Jew and Gentile together as one new people. And this is the way God is wanting to change the world. So the church, God's vision for the church is a world-changing institution. It's world-changing. And we can participate in that. But in order to do that, we might think, well, we need a really great strategy. You know, we really need to, you know, we, we, well, this thing in, the, in governments needs to change, so we have permission to do this, and then, and then this has got to happen, then, then we've got to get a budget for that and all this. But Paul's plan is not all of that stuff. I'm not sure exactly what the Apostle Paul's budget was when he proposed to change the world, which he did, but it wasn't much. It was not much and yet God still used him to change the world as we know it and so Paul when he talks here about the power that works in us he believes that's the key to changing the world it's not anything out in the world it's not grabbing the world's resources and and just trying to use it a little bit better it's God's resources working in you that's what changes the world And this is all directed to the glory of Christ forever and ever. And I love what he says here in connection to prayer. Now to Him who is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all that we could ask or think. Many times people give up on prayer because God in their estimation has fallen short of their prayers. The great irony of that is God is able to do far beyond what we could ever even conceive of praying for. There's prayers God has designed for you to pray that aren't even on your radar because they're so beyond your understanding of what is possible. That's the kind of thing God is able to do. We tend to reduce God to our plans and our purposes. 
you know, God, well, I think this is how you ought to do it, and this is the way you do it, and I'm going to pray for that. Oh, it's not getting done. Uh, oh, you're not meeting my expectations, God. If God is not answering our prayers, it's not because our bar is too high, it's because it's too low. I believe God wants to raise the bar on our prayer life. That we believe, that we believe what Paul is saying here. He's able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all I could ask or think. What that tells me is in my prayer life, I'm very often selling God short. I'm not praying as, as, as in as much faith as I think God wants me to. I'm limiting God. I'm like, I'm praying for God to do something. And maybe by your standards, my standards, it'd be a pretty great thing. But God's like, that's it? Really? That's it? I'm kind of reminded of this story in 2 Kings that I was reading last week and it's the story of Elisha who's who's about to to die it's the end of his ministry and and Hezekiah calls for Elisha and he says one last time I need Elisha's blessing the the king is surrounding me what are we going to do and Elisha goes to him and he says take an arrow and fire it out the window and so Hezekiah takes an arrow and fires it out the window that arrow signifies that God is going to destroy the army now take, another, now take some more arrows and strike them on the ground. And so it says Hezekiah took an arrow, struck once, struck twice, struck three times, and that was enough. And Elisha said, why did you only strike the ground three times? You should have struck it five or six times, and if you had, all the armies would have been destroyed forever. What's the point of that story? Hezekiah sold God short. He believed, look, if God even does the one arrow, that's, that's amazing. I mean, that's already beyond what I could ask or think. Oh, maybe I'm a great man or woman of faith. Oh, I'll strike it three times. Lord, would you do this and this and this? And Elisha's response is, God is able to do exceedingly, abundantly, above all you could ever ask or think. And the problem is you don't believe that. You don't believe that God is able to do what He says He is able to do. What we're talking about here, again, it's, it's amazing to me because we tend to think of world changers as, as you know, only a very select group of people, like a Jeff Bezos, right? He's got the money to change the world. I don't. Bill Gates, he's got the money to change the world. I don't. That's how we think about it. But Paul says, you know who has the power to change the world? It's not Jeff Bezos. It's not Bill Gates. They're a part of the world. They're not going to change it. They can make it more of the same and make it repackage it, but it's going to be the world still. What Paul is saying is it's anyone in whom the Spirit of Christ is dwelling, who is trusting in God, who is praying for exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think, those are the men and women that change the world. And I've seen this in, in my own life with just the history of Calvary Chapel behind me. I'm not trying to brag or, or boast in our um, tradition, but God took a ragtag bunch of people, uh, a minister who was, by his own account, washed up, failure, ministering for you know, 15, 20 years, was never had more than 50 people. He's like, oh, you know, I might as well quit and do something else. And then God does the Calvary Chapel movement, which now has thousands of churches worldwide. 
And then he picks as his students, his disciples, his church planners, not the, the PhDs and the MDivs and the scholars, but ex-cons, drug addicts. Like, you know, I mean, it really is kind of like the 12 disciples, just this ragtag, like, why in the world did you pick these guys and use them to change countless lives? And that's just in my generation. That's just in our lifetime. What does God want to do in our day? What is God able to do in our day? Let's ask that question. What do you believe God is able to do? To what extent are we partnering with God in faith, in prayer, in love, and in mission? It's my belief that just as the gospel of Jesus Christ will echo throughout eternity and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, even so our lives, the work that we do, the time that we spend, the prayers that we pray, the love that we show, the cost and sacrifice that we can make, this too will all echo in eternity if we put our trust in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I just come before you this morning and I, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you that your word is living and powerful. As Paul said, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to pierce right into our hearts and to discern the difference between soul and spirit, bone and marrow, and it discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. I believe your word can reveal the unbelief in us this morning. The areas of our lives where we can, we can admit that we don't trust you as much as we ought to. We admit there's rooms in, in the house of our heart that is closed off to you. We don't want you in there. But you're calling us to open that door this morning. Many of us, we're trying to live, we're trying to have you, but live outside your sovereignty as though everything depends on us. We're not living prayerful lives. We're not yielding ourselves to you. Lord, would you help us to repent and become men and women of prayer. Lord, maybe some of us this morning are doubting the extent of your love. And we can know if that is probably the worst spiritual attack that could truly come against a believer is the idea that you, the God of love, somehow, because of this or that, don't love us. Lord, I pray you would dispel any doubt in our hearts this morning about your love that you've loved us with an everlasting love, that the sum total of all the people in our lives who have loved us cannot for a moment compare to the love you have for us. All the love we will ever get from anyone, father, mother, sister, brother, wife, children, husband, whoever it is, none of that can compare to your love for us. But you use these pictures as shadows and images of who you are the source of all love. Help us to know your love this morning and that we can trust you because you love us. And Lord, I do just pray that you would empower each person here this morning because you do want us to live lives that echo in eternity. You don't want us to live each day thinking we're not making a difference and our lives don't matter, no matter how it might appear to others. If we're in Christ, 
and we are trusting in you and we simply obeying what you tell us to do, if we are in prayer, then what we are doing will echo in eternity. And I just pray that we would experience that, that value and that purpose this morning. I pray all these things so that Jesus would get all the glory in the church now and forever. Amen.